Parents, in this episode, we cover a sensitive topic that deals with suicide, and the program is intended for mature audiences only. You ever worry about the possibility that your child would consider suicide? Well, if you're like any parent in America, of course you do. Depression and anxiety have risen in the U.S., and this is an issue that's on all of our minds. Well, that's why I decided to interview a fascinating gal. Her name is Emma Benoit. Emma tried and failed to commit suicide and is here to talk about what goes on in the mind of a depressed teen and how parents can help. When Emma attempted suicide and failed, she was a junior in high school. Her story is painful, but it's one that every parent needs to hear. Let's jump into my interview with Emma. Well, Emma, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. Your story is remarkable. When you were a junior in high school, you started to experience some problems that led up to a suicide attempt before your senior year. Can you take us back to junior year and what was happening in your life or how you were feeling? Yeah, so prior to my high school experience, when I was in elementary and middle school even, I was really insecure, very self-conscious, very not self-aware, and just very much in my head all the time as a young kid. And growing up with these kind of issues as a young kid, not knowing how to express myself, not really understanding my feelings, I grew up thinking that the best way to handle my feelings and the things that bothered me was to push them down and just kind of tuck them away. And so I grew up doing that with myself, with my feelings. Anytime something would be bothering me or burdening me, or I would have a heavy feeling or a big feeling, I would tuck it away, push it down. And so naturally, as I got older, you know, problems became bigger as I became bigger. Mm -hmm. And those feelings grew with me and never really knowing what to do with them. When I got to high school, I was really caught in a state of depression and not really understanding why I felt so bad and why I felt so sad. Um, But looking back in hindsight, it was because of the years worth of not expressing myself, not indulging on my feelings, not being open and expressing my vulnerabilities with people that kind of culminated and led me to feeling so depressed my junior year of high school. Did you recognize you were depressed? Not at all. Mm. I came from an area where mental health was not talked about and furthermore kind of stigmatized. Yeah. Um, the idea that I had of depression and what it looked like did not align with my reality and what my feelings were. So I didn't I didn't I didn't associate my mental and emotional pain with being depression. So you carried it alone. Did your parents have any clues that you were really struggling underneath? There were definitely warning signs looking back in hindsight that went missed. Um, One of the biggest warning signs was the fact that I didn't try out for cheerleading. Prior to not trying out my senior year, cheerleading had been my biggest passion. Mm -hmm. It was the thing that always brought me joy. I was constantly excited to go to practice. I loved my sport and I loved my team and I loved being a part of that environment and community. And my depression had gotten so bad that I completely lost the passion and the desire and the drive to participate. So I didn't try out. 
And looking back, obviously hindsight, um, that was definitely a big, big red flag. Another huge red flag that is pretty typical amongst teens, and it was very true for myself and my experience, is just overall character shifts. I think it's important to kind of know what is baseline, base level character behavior for a person and a young person. Um, and I definitely was not acting on my baseline character. Mm -hmm. I was very easily angered. Um, my tolerance for frustration was extremely low. I was just like a short fuse and that was not true to my character. Mm -hmm. Did your parents see that shift too? Did they ask you, hey, why aren't you trying out for cheerleading? They did see some shifts and they did ask me questions as to why I wasn't trying out. But I think coming from an environment where you, my parents didn't know to be looking for these things, they did not have the knowledge that something that bad was going on within me. So I guess their frame of questions weren't really landing with me. So the questions that they were asking me I wasn't receiving, therefore I wasn't going to open up. Mm -hmm. I felt like, and I know a lot of young people feel this way with their parents and it just is the way that the dynamic is, but I kind of felt like my parents were not concerned about me. They were just concerned about where I was at in life and where I was going and the progress I was making. Obviously, again, in hindsight, that was not the case, but the way I was perceiving it, that's just the way I felt. So. When I was approached with questions like, what's going on? You're not yourself. What can we help you? Like, you know, is there something going on? Uh, I would put up a wall of defense. Like I said, because I don't think that they were landing based on how I was perceiving it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that parents often miss the boat. And I'm talking about myself as well, because we focus so much on how well our kids are doing in school and cheerleading and this and that. And we tend to put too much of our focus on that rather than sort of looking into the kid and going, wow, you know, you're, I'm sensing there's something really going on with you. Let's just sort of sit back and um, sit down here and try to figure it out. So what would you say to a parent listening who thinks, gee was maybe my teen is depressed? What are the questions they should ask that would land? First and foremost, I would say open up the conversation in a comfortable way. It's really uncomfortable for a young person to be expressive with their feelings. It just is. It's unnatural. Um, there's no rule book on it. So going into the conversation with that frame of mind, knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable, knowing that it's going to be difficult, um, and it very well may trigger emotions in you. And just having that idea that it's not an easy conversation to have if you suspect your young one is struggling, but ultimately the best approach is one of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. And don't feel parents, it's crucial for you to know, you don't have to fix the problem. I know it's, I can only imagine, I'm not a parent yet, but I can only imagine how much hurt that brings to you to see your young one hurting. And I can assume that you just want to rush and coddle and fix the problem. But ultimately that's going to do more damage than it is going to help because the problem with feelings is they need to be felt. They need to be felt. They need to have a space to be felt and to really like just feel and express and get it all out without coming in and saying, well, how can we fix this? How can you feel better? Mm -hmm. You know? So that's the biggest thing is just knowing that it's not going to be easy and don't feel like you have to fix the problem. 
the best thing to do is just sit there and listen, open up your ear um, and fully listen to receive instead of listening to respond. Mm -hmm. I think when you listen to receive, you actually can hear a little more of what they're saying and then you can then rationalize it better in your adult brain and then help the young person with those rational thoughts because the reality is a young person's brain isn't developed and so when they're feeling super overwhelmed super stressed and freaking out they don't need you to rush in and say oh just get over it that's not the end of the world they need you to say what are you feeling talk to me about it express the emotion and then they need your help with your mental maturity to help them rationalize that type of thinking and those those pesky thoughts and things like that i know it's a long-winded answer but no no i think that's great because i think as a parent i think it's hard because we want to help our kids we want to approach and hear but at the same time we don't because to face that your child is really struggling pushes a lot of buttons in us and we immediately think what did I do what did I do how did this happen and parents need to get over that you know whether you are involved in making this depression come about in your kids or whether you're not I mean sometimes it's just genetic personality parenting whatever you got to take a big deep breath and walk into your teen's life and sit there and be present and don't ask for short for short answers so that's what was happening and then tell us about the summer of your senior year you were saying you were going down and down and downhill you didn't want to try out for for your cheerleading what were you feeling the summer before your senior year i was so lost i had gotten to the point where i had been struggling with these things for years on end and never feeling like i was justified in my feelings enough to reach out for help i was so bad in a state of comparison with myself and others. I was constantly comparing my worst to others' best and constantly comparing the things and the problems that I thought I had with other major massive problems and diminishing what I was feeling and going through by saying other people out there have it worse and things of that nature, that kind of language I was constantly perpetuating in my own head so I got to a point the summer before my senior year of high school where I wasn't a part of a team anymore. I didn't have any prospects or plans for college lined up. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my future or my life. And so all of those pressures on top of the immense insecurity that I had, on top of never expressing or indulging in my feelings and the way that things mentally and emotionally affected me, all of those factors culminated led me to making an attempt to take my life. And I remember it very clear. I remember how bad that felt. I remember how heavy I felt and feeling like there's no point. Like I had just lost all hope. And I really felt like this was the only thing that would bring me peace. Mm -hmm. For me, and I know for a lot of other survivors of suicide, the suicide attempt itself isn't necessarily about death. It's not necessarily about wanting to die. I was 16. I didn't know. I couldn't have possibly known if I wanted to die or not. Mm -hmm. My brain was in a state of crisis and I was in a state of immense faulty thinking. And so in that moment when I was feeling so hurt and hopeless and lost and like a burden to my family and everyone around me, the thing that told me that it would make it better 
was the escape from pain yeah. and that was death. Yeah. So I want to make that very clear because I know a lot of people misview suicide and they misview it and they think it's selfish. And that hurts me because I thought in that moment that I was doing what was best for my family. Mm -hmm. And I thought in that moment that I was doing what was best for me. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of other young people feel that way and have that type of pesky, faulty thought process. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to just put it out there that when you are having that type of thinking, your brain isn't working the way it should. No, you're absolutely right. And as a pediatrician, I've, I've seen that transition happen in teenagers, particularly like with anorexia, they'll be okay and okay. And then they just start to nosedive and their thinking is so twisted. And it sounds like yours. Praise God you didn't succeed. So did somebody interrupt your suicide attempt? Did you just back out? How, how did it all, how were you rescued? Um, God, that's just the best way to put it. I was, the day that I attempted suicide, it was June 7th of 2017. And it was during the summer. And like I said, I didn't have any where to be, no responsibilities. It was just me and my thoughts, mm -hmm. me and my lonesome. And idle time is not, not helpful to me personally. And I had a lot of idle time. And so I was home alone and I was feeling extremely hopeless, lost, and burdened, like I just explained. And I didn't know what to do, um, so I just called my mom because that day I experienced my first panic attack. Mm. Um, my body fully went into a state of panic. I had experienced mild panic symptoms before, but my body flew into a state of panic and I didn't recognize it, so I didn't know how to fit, help myself. I didn't know what to do with myself in that state, so I just called my mom instinctively and I was on the phone with her and we were talking and I was getting I feel like looking back I I feel like I was getting to the point where I was ready to open up mm -hmm. and I was ready to say there's something wrong and I think I need to see someone and at the time she was working at a job where she was the first person to answer the phone mm -hmm. and so she had that as a priority as well as having me on the phone and so she, the phone rang and she placed me on hold and in the minutes that I was on hold, that, like you said, just that spiral of thought, it really came full force. And I remember one of the biggest intrusive thoughts I had was, you're going to take away a lot of problem and stress from every, from people's lives, mm -hmm. people meaning my mom, dad, and my coaches, um, because I felt like I had just been become such a burden. And so I made the attempt when I was on hold with my mom. Oh, and she came back to the line and didn't know anything that had happened, didn't know, she had no clue. Mm -hmm. um, but she said that mother's intuition or a sign and feeling from God, she just knew that something really bad had happened. And so she immediately left work, um, didn't tell anyone she was leaving and just left and came home to find me. So after that, did your uh, mother take you to the emergency room? What did she do? Well, I want to give some context of my injuries um, and how I attempted. So typically, I don't think the method is of importance, but to give context, I think it's important. I used a firearm to attempt suicide. So I shot myself in the chest. 
And when my mom found me, I was obviously bleeding very heavily and had some pretty intensive um, wounds and injuries. So immediately I was brought to ICU at the hospital, had to have um, a surgery to repair my carotid artery that was completely severed by the bullet. And I suffered several strokes during surgery as well due to the loss of blood in the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I left the hospital, I was diagnosed as C4 quadriplegic because I suffered a spinal cord injury due to the internal bleeding and the blood clots that had formed on my spinal cord. So my injuries were quite extensive. Um, so I was immediately airlifted to the hospital and spent the next, I want to say it was three months, four months in the hospital, inpatient, hospital, inpatient rehab, et cetera. So. As a pediatrician, I have seen too many kids and teens struggle with mental health issues. If they're depressed, I'm straightforward and say, have you thought of killing yourself? If they say yes, then I ask, how would you do it? Usually kids who are thinking about suicide have a plan. Before I continue the interview, I want to tell you about a documentary made of Emma's experience. You can find it at My Ascension. Dot us forward slash. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Emma Benoit, and she's the survivor of a suicide attempt that left her paralyzed from the neck down. This is a topic of critical importance, so let's not waste time. Let's get back to it. So talk to us about your way out. Clearly, after the hospitalization and you know you're you're recovering physically what was your emotional journey and how did people unravel all of that twisted dark feeling it was a hard journey to walk i'll tell you that because my injuries were so critical i spent the first half of my recovery focusing on my physical recovery and trying to regain my abilities being diagnosed as C4 quadriplegic basically means that I was paralyzed from the neck down. So that was of the utmost importance for me at the time. And I kind of feel like because of everything that I was going through physically, I feel like my brain kind of protected me from what led me to that decision mm -hmm. for the first couple of months when I was working to recover my body physically. It wasn't until I had come home from the hospital that I was reminded of how heavy those feelings were and everything that transpired to lead up to that point. And so when I had gotten home from the hospital after those four months, I really started to take a deep dive and trying to unravel where things went wrong and where things could have looked different um, and whatnot. When I was in the hospital though, I did see a, uh, I did see a Christian counselor mm -hmm. for the first couple of months that I was in there just to start talking, um, which prior to that, that was completely foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So, and then from there, I just continued with therapists and counselors and did a lot of self work, a lot of looking within a lot of just personal growth work. Mm -hmm. That's very painful. I mean, to do. And I think particularly if you're a kid, you know, 16, 17 years of age, like you said, your brain can't process things mm -hmm. the way it can process them for you now as you're older. Mm -hmm. And I think from my experience, it's really hard for teenagers to grab hold of how they're really feeling 
and be able to articulate it because all they know is they feel this wad of bad on the inside. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily know where it's coming from. You can't articulate what it is. And sometimes you just have to have somebody, I want to see your experience, but from mine, you just need somebody to sort of sit with you and, and walk through it and wait and walk through it and wait and let you know, you know, you're not alone in this. You're just not alone in this. Um, did you find on your way out with the counseling, were you able to understand? I mean, I'm sure that took some time. Oh, it, I would say it took me about two years completely to get to a point where I was like, okay, I don't need to see a therapist every week. I think I can manage. I'm, I feel, I felt mentally well mm -hmm. and mentally capable and strong mentally. And that it's hard work. I mean, it's a lot of self-reflection. It's a lot of looking at how you perceive things and then flipping it and looking at the actual reality of it. And it's, it's a lot of internal healing that I had to do. And I think one of the biggest things that helped propel me on this journey of emotional healing has been the validation that I've gotten from people. Mm -hmm. um, I was in such a state of personal invalidation. I was constantly invalidating what I was going through, how I was feeling, et cetera. So to come out of something like this and to finally for the first time really ever get genuine, pure validation and someone to sit back and say, no, I could see why that would hurt you. I, I see why that would weigh heavy on you. You know, things like that, hearing that type of language from another person opposite of me was truly groundbreaking for me. And I think that kind of helped me propel on this journey to heal as well as how intense my feeling of regret after making the attempt was. Um, immediately after I pulled the trigger, I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to die. I was so scared to die because I didn't want people to write my story for me. I was just terrified and feeling that immense feeling of regret, knowing how strong the feeling was before the decision was made. It just something in me sparked and it just told me that because, you know, I was dealing with a lot of feeling like I'm the victim, but I'm also the perpetrator hmm. because I'm a victim in this situation because I felt so bad that I didn't want to be here anymore. But now I'm left with these lifelong permanent injuries and it's my fault. And how can I get pity and sympathy from people because I did it to myself? So I was in this in this warfare, honestly, for the first couple months. And it wasn't until I started to receive validation and until I started to really reflect and remember how intense those suicidal thoughts were. And then on the flip side, how intense that regret was. And just to compare the two, it validated for me that I never wanted to die. I didn't want to take my life. Um, and it just, it, it made, a, it made a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. It really did. Have you forgiven yourself? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't mean to press too much, but from my perspective, you, you didn't do it to yourself. You had a bad disease. Depression's bad. I mean, it's a life threatening mm -hmm. disease. And from my perspective, I hear you talk about that. And I want to say, no, 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 you didn't mean to do that to yourself. You're just a kid. What role did friends and family play in your recovery or leading up to the suicide attempt? I would say leading up, my friends and family 
never did or said anything that contributed to that type of thought process. In fact, the things that they did and said contributed to how badly I felt about my relationship and my presence in their lives. I was so insecure about every aspect of my life, physical, academic, sport. Like I was just all around insecure. And so to have family and friends who genuinely loved me and supported me, I was kind of not able to fully accept it and receive it because I wasn't there with myself. Mm -hmm. So I think looking back, that's kind of the role they played post attempt. My family and friends are what picked me up again Mm -hmm. and really brought me and put me back together. It was a huge learning journey for my inner, for my immediate family, my parents and my brother, um, who obviously saw no signs at the time and didn't expect this. Um, so a lot had, we had to unlearn and learn different ways to communicate and on all these things. You know, there's this enormous disconnect in the minds of teenagers, in the minds of all of us actually, and that we look for affirmation and security in the stuff we do, Mm -hmm. um, in being who we think we are. And that's why I think we fiddle with jobs and athletics and even gender, all sorts of things. Who am I? Who am I? But what you're saying is you needed to know that Emma, the deepest part of you was loved and accepted and the cheerleading and the grades didn't matter. So Mm -hmm. obviously that's God's love for us. How could your parents or how could somebody have communicated that to you or how do people communicate that to you now? I would say you're 100% right. For me, the biggest struggle that I had was the search for an identity and the search for a place of belonging. And obviously now all of my identity and belonging is with my Lord and Savior. And I think that can be a really great encouraging tool for a lot of young people if they are struggling with their identity and feeling like they just don't fit in any box or with any group. Um, there's a box and a place that you always have and you always fit. And that's that's with God. So that could have been a way. I don't know that I would have received it at the time looking back, but I think what could have really made a difference is receiving compliments and validation and affirmation based on my character, based on what I, who I am internally. And I think it all stems from my childhood. I got so much validation from being very athletic and talented in my sport. I got validation from putting on a pretty face and makeup and being called beautiful. I got validation from all of those physical external things um, and I think ultimately that that's where the damage started is where I was building that foundation of self-love. Um, so I think parents, it's crucial that your kids know that their successes and their achievements are just that. They're just achievements. They're just successes. And equal to that, you have failures. And I think it's important to acknowledge the failures in the same respect that you acknowledge the successes and understanding that accolades and achievements and successes don't make a person a soul makes a person Mm -hmm. so if you can do anything it's acknowledge 
and point out the soul that you see in your kid and the the things that are unchangeable and unshakable about your kid. I love it. And I love what you just said, because I think, unfortunately, we're going in the wrong direction. You know, we're increasing our culture, parents, coaches, teachers, we're increasing the amount of tension, attention that we give for kids and their accomplishments, even more so when, you know, four years ago, you know, when you were having trouble. And I think that's one of the great challenges that parents have is to back up and say, you know, wait a minute, all of my friends are applauding their kids for being this and this and this. And there's a natural tendency to want to jump in and go, yeah, but my kid don't, you know, Mm -hmm. and to turn the corner and say, no, what matters most about my child is their soul and their person. And I worry about kids, young kids, girls and boys, in, in feeling that they need to try to find their identity in something that they do or some label they put on themselves. And so for parents who are listening to us now, and maybe they have a healthy 10, 11 year old, you said do your best to champion their character and talk to them about their value as a person how I know this is hard for you because you're not a parent, but I'm pushing on you here. How would um, if you were a parent now, how would you from the very beginning of a child's life, how would you instill those that belief that they are wonderful just because they are daily affirmations? Whenever I have kids, I have a goal. Granted, you know, parents have goals. Um, But I really hope that whenever I become a mother that I can start when my kids are babies and have them look in the mirror and tell themselves affirmations. I think daily affirmations, they do a lot for me and I know they do a lot for a lot of young people. Um, I would start with that daily affirmations, telling them, look at yourself in the mirror and what do you see and and asking them to validate themselves Mm -hmm. and telling them the things that they are and that they they have. So you are capable, you are strong, you are loved, you are admired, you are worthy, you can do it, you will do it. You know, things like that, those very positive forms of language are really validating for a young person and I think can only build their Mm self-esteem. I think, like I said, going back to it, the best way to do it is just to constantly reassure them that they are good enough and I think in the climate of society today, it could be helpful to not only let them know that, hey, you're good enough, but also back it with, I know it can feel like because you're seeing all of these things online and all of these things on Instagram, that you want to be like that and you want to look like that and you want to have those things. But there is enough for all of us, right? There's enough for all. There's enough to go around. (laughs) I know I struggled with feeling like, oh, well, she's going to the dance, so I can't go to the dance. And it's like, well, no, there will be another one. Mm -hmm. And you can go to that too. So I think just understanding that it's not the end all be all if someone has something that you desire and understanding that you can champion that person and support that person and still have the same desires, if that makes sense. I think it's just understanding that there is no grounds to compare any individual to another individual. We're all on our own. 
we're all on different journeys. And we're all worth the exact same thing. Yes. We're all I'm worth the same thing. You know, God looks at us and says, you know, my love for you is the same as my love for, you know, somebody running um, a, five, a Fortune 500 company versus the person that's sitting in jail who's trying to get offered. My love for you is the same. And I don't think we do as parents a very good job of communicating that to our kids. And I want to just add quickly, because I think it's important for parents when your kid is in trouble, when they've just gotten in trouble, myself, that was my most vulnerable time. When I was just gotten in, I had just gotten in trouble. I had just gotten reprimanded for something. I had just gotten caught on a lie. That is their most vulnerable time. So instead of pulling away because you're disappointed or angry, lean in mm -hmm. because that's when they need your support. That's when they need to hear, it's okay, no matter what you do, I love you. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, I am here for you. No matter what you do, we can get through it. You know, hearing that type of language and validation, especially when they've just gotten in trouble, is so crucially important. That's a great, great point. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, but sometimes we see clusters of kids committing suicide, you know, together, maybe four or five kids. It's sort of a, you know, monkey see, monkey do. What is that all about? I think personally, because the thought of suicide for a young person, and I'm just going to say it, is, is a seductive thought. When you're struggling or hurting, you have to understand, you understand your doctor. Um, it's important to know that young people don't rationalize thought the same way a fully matured brain does. So when something traumatic happens in their life or when something minor happens in their life, their reaction is going to vary based on where they're at mentally and emotionally in their development. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I think the reason that that happens is because young people are making permanent decisions based on temporary emotional feelings. And that I feel like that's pretty consistent amongst most teenage mm -hmm. suicide attempts yeah. is it's a decision based on emotion, mm -hmm. pure emotion. There's no rational thought there. So if someone's friend passes by suicide, granted, it's not always going to be the case, but most times that, will trickle down. Mm -hmm. So I think when there is a loss is when we need to be most vigilant. Boy, and I I appreciate you saying that suicide is seductive because I do mm -hmm. think that kids get drawn into, if they have a friend they loved and they took their life, there's a sense that she was, this was kind of good and right for her because they don't see what happens after you know the suicide. Mm -hmm that that would be a good a good place for me to go. Emma, I could just talk to you forever. Honestly, truly, this has been the best podcast we've ever done. We're coming up on 200. Emma, thank you so much for um, coming on. This took a lot of courage on your part, and I'm so grateful that you shared your story and that you taught us and that you spoke really boldly to the parents out there who need to hear what you have to say. So thanks for coming and joining me today. Well, thank you so much for the platform and the opportunity to share my story. I really appreciate it. It's very therapeutic for me. 
This has been a sobering interview, but I hope it helps you understand what teens are going through and most importantly, what you can do to be aware and to help them. Parents play an enormous role in helping their kids through depression. I really appreciate you listening today, even though it was hard. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, if you feel that your child or teen is depressed, ask them. Often parents are afraid to broach the subject because they feel that if they talk about depression, this will make it worse for kids or put ideas in their heads. This is absolutely not true. The exact opposite happens. When a child sees that a parent understands him and is willing to help, he feels a sense of relief. Trouble is more likely to come when a parent pretends they don't see it or if they don't want to talk about it. Two, if you're concerned that your child might consider suicide, do three things very quickly. First, call a suicide hotline. Second, don't leave your child alone. And third, take anything in your house that she could use to kill herself out of the house. Knives, guns, ropes, etc. Look around your house for things she might be able to use. Third, pay close attention to your child's friends. Sadly, there's a Me Too influence in suicide. In a peculiar way, kids romanticize suicide. They can see it as a grand gesture. When they see a friend commit suicide, they see the attention that person got and that he escaped the pain he was in. So in their minds, he was quote unquote successful. I know this doesn't resonate with you and I, but we're talking about kids here. First, look to see if your child hangs around kids who may be depressed. If you don't know, ask your child. Talk openly about depression to your kids to take away the stigma and the shame and let them know that you're there to help them. I want to thank Emma for having the courage and passion to talk about her own story and to help other kids. She's a brave lady. Follow Emma on Instagram at Benoit Emma. B-E-N-O-I-T-E-M-M-A, and take a look at her documentary, myascension.us forward slash. Now let's recap my three points to ponder. One, if you feel your child or teen is depressed, ask them. Two, if you're concerned that your child might consider suicide, do three things very quickly. Third, pay close attention to your child's friends. Friends, I want to let you know that I have some very great things around the corner for you. I'm amping up my courses, making help easier to find on my website, and a lot more. So please be patient. But most importantly, keep checking my website. They'll come any day now. Go to meekerparenting.com. And if you know a dad who needs encouragement, check out my brand new Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And Always remember, great kids are raised, not born. <laughs>